Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm here to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter and to share stories of interesting and insightful women who may just inspire you in your current chapter. The best way for people to find out about the second chapter podcast is for you to tell a friend. Tell them to search the second chapter wherever they listen to podcasts so they too can hear inspiring stories of women who have changed their lives and or careers after 35. This week, I'm speaking with Jane Griffin, a former BBC and ITN television and news reporter with over 25 years of combined experience in journalism, corporate communication, business-to-business PR, and crisis communication. Thanks in part to a nudge from a former manager, Jane recently launched her own PR business, Positive Story, not just putting a positive spin on business-to-business PR, but actively seeking companies who promote sustainable and ethical business practices and who share her values. I was thinking, I'm not sure I really fit here anymore. I was beginning to think that I could use my talents in a better way. Sometimes I think you get nudged before you're actually ready to make that decision. And I felt I was actually nudged in a way to do what I've done now. And I think it was definitely the best thing for me. Hi, Jane. Thank you for joining me on the second chapter. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm really excited to talk about your journey and how we've been in life in general. Yeah, quite good. There's been a lot happening at the moment. So where do you want to start? (laughs) Well, I like this because I was telling somebody on a recent episode, I'm so bad at the small talk at the beginning. So I'm all about diving right in and finding out more about you. I know you started your initial career as a reporter and big name, BBC kind of things. It sounds very enviable. What led you in that direction? So I suppose as a child, I had a, my godfather was a news reporter and actually he set up his own business. He has a PR, sorry, press agency. And so I was always quite in awe of him. And when I was at school, I would write and I got quite good marks for my English essays. And I thought this is something I'd like to go into. But first of all, I did a French degree <laughs> with a bit of English in first year. And, and part of that, I spent a year in France teaching English to students at a lycée, so it's like secondary school. And then I came back after that and studied journalism down in Falmouth at Falmouth College of Arts, uh, broadcast journalism. And that's where I decided I wanted to set my sights. And yes, I freelanced for a while. I worked for radio and TV. And part of that was working for the BBC, freelancing for BBC in East Anglia, so Look East and I worked for Anglia Television for over two years, solidly, And yeah, had some great experiences, met some quite famous people. I interviewed Vivian Westwood, this was one of my claims to pay. I think when I interviewed her, I was actually, I think I was reporting for Radio, BBC Radio Norfolk at the time. And she was, she had an exhibition in Norwich Castle Museum. And I think it was shoes, shoes, or maybe shoes and fashion. And I had this ewer, which is a really old fashioned, I don't know if they even exist anymore, but it was really old technology. So it was like a box with two wheels inside it with tape on, brown tape. Oh yeah, I don't remember those. (laughs) Yeah. And I was there trying to work out how to use this thing. And bless her, she was so patient with me. She was lovely. And I came away from that thinking, oh, what a lovely lady. She she was obviously quite mad, really. And uh, very punk. She was punky. I was quite young then. And I was, it was, I just saw just what lovely native she was. Of course, she's just recently passed away. And yeah. I think one of the things, obviously this sort of godmother of punk fashion, but I think one of the things that came out so much with everyone talking about her as people do when someone dies, but how her humanitarian causes were, mm-hmm. she was so good for the world. 
And I think she seemed, I mean, I never had the privilege of interviewing her, <laughs> but she did seem just so mad and so cool and also she, yeah. just giving so much to the world. Yeah, no, she was lovely. And I just, I don't think I realized quite what big names she was actually at the time. And then I think, I don't know if you've even heard of her, actually, to be honest. I was like in my early 20s. And since then, obviously, I think, oh, wow, I interviewed her. <laughs> She's a Big figure, pretty famous. Yeah, I interviewed some other people like Chris Packham, who's a wildlife presenter, and mm-hmm. some politicians and racing drivers, all sorts anyway. Yeah. So you skipped a little something that I know was in as well in this timeline, which is, I think you spent a year in Japan as well? Yeah, yeah, actually. So that was straight after university. Yes, I went out to Japan. I had decided, well, I found out about it. It was basically a scheme to work in Japan, teach English at schools, English schools in Japan. There was a company called Nova that ran them. Ran them, And yeah, I decided to go out and yes, lived there for a year teaching English at a school. And it was quite, it was really hard work. If you were late for an hour, you lost, I think, a half a day's pay. It was really very strict. But I managed to travel a lot whilst I was there. And I did things I had never done before. I went diving for the first time. I love scuba diving. And I started diving in Japan at the time off the islands of Okinawa in the south of Japan, which is very like subtropical. Absolutely amazing place. And I went skiing for the first time in Nagano, which is where they hold the Winter Olympics. You know, I did some amazing things then. I traveled. I went and visited Sapporo, which is um, pretty much all covered in snow in the north of the country. And visited, of course, all the temples in Kyoto and went to Nagasaki. I was based just outside Tokyo. So I would go in and see, go look around the museums and see the beautiful parks full of cherry blossom and irises. And yeah, I had an amazing time. I definitely didn't want to skip that because I feel like, I don't know, I think something like spending a year in some place that's obviously so different than where you're from and having these first experiences is a huge, I don't know, it just says a lot about how things happened in your life and maybe formulates a lot of where you go. Yeah, and I think really from an early age, I traveled. I mean, my I was quite fortunate. I showed an early interest in French at school and my parents used to send me on these French exchanges that school organized. So I would go off on them on my own each year from about the age of, I don't know, 10 or 11. And I really enjoyed traveling and exploring places. And yeah, it was just great. I think that's probably, you know, obviously I did spend the year in France. I just talked about as part of my degree, which I absolutely loved. I I was in the south of France, a place called Draguignon. Uh, which is not far from the Côte d'Azur, so Nice and Saint-Tropez and places like that. And I absolutely loved that year. It was one of the best years of my life. And I suppose in a way, traveling like that, I'd explored other countries as well, European countries. But, you know, Japan was a bit of a mystery. And I suppose it was quite an opportunity to actually go straight after university before I'd actually started a career. And that was a, that was the best time, really. And then whilst I was there, I applied for my broadcast journalism postgraduate diploma. So other than interviewing some really interesting and recognizable <laughs> names, I know you were doing more than just interviewing and reporting while you were uh, at the BBC and some of these other places. Tell me a bit about how all the things fit together. Yeah, so I was, when I started freelancing, I was doing obviously radio and TV and I did some producing for BBC World Television as well. It was a story at the time about the fishing wars and fishing price wars and which was happening off the coast of the coast past East Anglia and went and helped them at like a crack of dawn one morning to help out with that. And just got, just did some really interesting things. And um, when I was at Anglia Television, I was there um, doing news and features as well. And I did a series about life in a day. So it was 
featuring different roles. So like an auctioneer, there was an amazing auction house in Woburn Sands. I was just near Woburn Safari Park. And uh, there we followed basically this auctioneer right from the crack of from the morning when he started viewing up, viewing the lots and showing people around and the auction in progress and sort of the end of the day and follow people through their, in their daily life to show what actually someone's job is. What is it that they do throughout that day? I did some series as well on jobs for students in the summer holidays, things like working on a lavender farm in Norfolk and also following. I actually met another fashion designer, in fact, who I interviewed, which is Wayne Hemingway from Red or Dead. And I did, I was doing some work with the some students from Northampton, Northampton University or College, who had a, an amazing fashion course. And they were going up to London to, uh, they'd taken part in a competition and they did actually won a prize, which was to work with Wayne Hemingway. So I followed them and did a, uh, a short kind of series about that, which is really interesting. So were the things that you were just, the stories you were just talking about, was that something as a reporter or a producer role? Yes, yeah, so I was a reporter. I was based in Milton Keynes at the time which is pretty much the centre of England. Yes. As far from the sea, I think, as you can get anywhere, I think is what it's famous for, of course, apart from having lots of roundabouts. It does have lots of roundabouts. <laughs> yeah. Going there for the first time as an American, it's okay. If you don't know how to drive a roundabout, you will when you leave Milton Keynes. <laughs> you certainly will. <laughs> but you also did producing as well. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So some of the producing, yeah. So like I was talking about the fish wars, some of that was a freelance, but yeah, my, my main role was news reporting. So that was what I was doing at Anglia Television. So as somebody who very closely looked at broadcast journalism as a career, <laughs> yes, I did. Listeners will be like, what didn't she look at as a career? But this was honestly something that I was going to visit schools to figure out where was I going to go for my broadcast journalism studies. My question is probably one you get a lot. What made you leave? Because it sounds fascinating. Oh, you were following all these different stories, meeting interesting people. It sounds like you were doing things that were really interesting for students as well. So it sounds like a really interesting career to me and that you got to do a lot. So what made you leave? Yeah, I, it was a really interesting career and it was fascinating meeting people and I still enjoy meeting people and talking to people and finding out their stories, I think, which is a large part of what I do today is doing PR. But I, I worked incredibly long days. I was based in Milton Keynes, quite a distance from my family. I felt that I didn't really get the support that I needed at work in terms of I had a boss who wasn't the easiest person to deal with. People had left because of her previously. And I also had this desire. I really wanted to do something more with my French. I spoke fluent French, having lived in France for a year. And I've always loved the language. And a job popped up in The Guardian, on the Monday media section in The Guardian. And it was a press officer role, like Eurotunnel. So the Channel Tunnel or Le Chuteau, as people call it. And I thought, wow, that would be amazing. I could live in France even. I could travel over there after work. And I used to receive press releases that were just so badly written. And I would think, I could write better than this. Why do they? I think they need, they need some help. And I just thought, actually, I would really like to go to France. And so I applied for this job and I thought, oh, I might not get it. But I got it. And it was only a temporary role, actually. It was a maternity role for a press officer. And the Channel Tunnel it was a quite issues-rich um, crisis communications and it was really challenging obviously got to use my writing skills and I just thought this is it would be brilliant and it was and I had a, a fantastic time there I lived actually bought myself a house near near the Channel Tunnel not far from there a place called Sandgate which is by the sea which I love the sea that's another theme in my life I suppose and 
I used to go over the in the Channel Tunnel after work at night to go and get my shopping from the French supermarket, the Hypermarché. And uh, sometimes watch a film in a cinema there and in Calais. And I, I just, I love that kind of lifestyle, the sort of French lifestyle. And I must both so that's the way I got into PR. And that's where my career, my PR career started. And then from there, I ended up being in the rail sector. So moving, I was headhunted from Eurotunnel to go and work at rail track. So I didn't really use my French very much there. I did use it about once, I think. And yeah, starting to work for, I ended up working for companies that tended to have a lot of challenges and issues. It was really communicating what was going on to the public. So I want to go back for one minute because it sounds so, uh, there's something so glamorous <laughs> that I can't skip over about this. Oh, I, I lived by the sea and I'd pop onto the channel. Yeah. To go over and shop in France. <laughs> yeah, I did. And I tell you what, this, the price of the washing powder was about a third or even a quarter of what it was in England at the time. I make these massive savings and it cost me one pound to travel over there with my staff benefits. I was going to say there must be some staff benefit because the cost of washing powder would not make up for a regular person's <laughs> channel fare. <laughs> That's right. No, it was it was lovely. I used to take friends over there and we'd go over there for the day. Okay, let's go to uh, Le Touquet for the day or let's go and visit Benoin or wherever. So yeah, so we used to have some nice trips, just driving over there at the weekend, maybe book one night away, but it was just so doable. And I think we forget in this country actually really some of the time how close we are to France and to be able to do that, it, was, it felt to me like a real luxury. Having grown up in Norfolk and I was probably 45 minutes to an hour away from the sea, but then chose my university, which is Bangor in North Wales, partly because it was so close to the sea. And I, I love that kind of environment. But yes, I think just just love living by the sea. So the Sandgate House, was it a short-term thing because of where you were working and then once you were headhunted away or are you still... I kept it, no, I kept it for a while. I kept it for about 10 years and then I needed the money to buy somewhere in London because I was working in London then. Right. It had to go, unfortunately, <laughs> but yeah, we still, we had, to, my husband came with me and we helped do up the house because it had been rented out whilst I was working away and we had some nice evenings spent there going down to the beach for the bottle of wine and picnic and... Yeah, it was nice to do that That again. So that sounds lovely. And I'm going to do a full 180 because you mentioned rail track and some of the challenges. I actually, not originally being from the UK, looked up rail track and I realized how difficult of a job it must have been yeah. to be doing any kind of public facing public relations for them. So tell me a bit about why that was appealing, first of all. Yeah, so I was approached by a headhunter for that, for that role. And I, when I first got it, I was like, oh gosh, rail track, they've got such a terrible reputation. What year was this? This would have been about 2000, 2001. So um, it seems like that was probably one of their worst periods. Yeah. Can, just a little background for people listening. Can you say why it was so challenging? Rail track is or was, so network rail is what it's called now. It's not quite exactly the same, but it was the company that ran the rail infrastructure in the UK. It has had a number of accidents, serious rail accidents, Hatfield, Labrick Grove. And whilst I was there, they also had the Porter's Bar rail crash. That was something, I mean, it was a terrible accident and complete tragedy. And yes, had to deal with the, the media relations, the media inquiries coming in about that. So what was appealing about that? Because 
I don't know, in my mind is okay, long hours was a good reason to leave or, you know, challenging bosses, all those kind of things. But I can imagine that having to discuss things that are actual tragedies happening is really challenging and stressful. It was quite a difficult role. I, obviously, it wasn't all just about that. A lot of it right. was communicating all the good things that the company was doing. And my role particularly, I was dealing with broadcast media because of my background. And I also dealt with PR for the major stations. So these were the 15 major stations which Railtrack managed. So including the really big ones like King's Cross, Victoria, Waterloo. All the really big stations that they had up and down the country, because there was obviously Edinburgh and Glasgow outside of London and Birmingham, New Street. So yeah, about 15, 15 stations altogether. So there was a lot of really positive PR um, that was happening naturally because of the actual topics involved. And I would take uh, some of the trade rail trade journalists up to see the new roof at Waterloo Station and take film crew down to King's Cross as they started filming Harry Potter. So that was an amazing experience. And there was a lot of really positive news stories going on. And I think it was just, I really enjoyed the challenge and the thinking about how are we going to deliver this message? Who's the audience for this? What is it that people need to know about? In a way, it's the same role as a journalist in that you are informing and educating, probably less of the entertaining. But I felt doing PR, I think I do feel still like a journalist in a lot of ways. I'm using my writing skills. I'm talking to people about what's going on, informing them and educating them. And it was an incredibly interesting company to work for. Of course, it had its challenges. And of course, the company went into administration and a rail a network rail took over and it, it was I felt quite sad actually about that at the time because the company was just coming out of a very negative period and actually had been improving but yeah it was it was certainly challenging and I but I and I like a challenge <laughs> I think that's just quite obvious in I think it's coming out a lot more to me now, realizing when I look back at the things that I've done and that there is this kind of common thread going through all of them. How did you get to the point that you were ready to start your own PR company? After Railtrack, I worked for a number of other companies as well in the sort of rail engineering sphere. And then so I was head of communications, corporate communications for a European train leasing company, which had fleets in UK and Europe, which was owned by Royal Bank Scotland Group. I was there for about five years. And then I had a few other jobs and I was the head of media relations for Bechtel, which is a really big, you probably, hopefully you've heard of it, a big <laughs> engineering construction company which is US by nature but obviously it's a it's a massive global company with I think 55,000 employees around the world so they had all these massive projects all over the world and I helped communicate the news about those projects and when I had my daughter as I had my daughter about five years ago five five and a half years ago it was a bit difficult to go back to that job because I couldn't work flexibly and a job like that I would be traveling around the world and whilst I was there I worked in Gabon I worked in Kosovo Brazil South Africa, Indonesia, Canada, the US. And sometimes I was away for two or three weeks at a time. It possibly would have been a bit difficult to do without a lot of support. And I didn't really have that family support. My husband was working a full-time job. So yes, it was not something I could really do in the same way anymore. And of course, I didn't really want to be away from my daughter, who was quite little at that time. And so I started looking for other jobs and I found a job with a consultancy in London. It was a, a communications and business consultancy in London. And I worked with tech clients and energy clients. After that period of time, and we were coming up to COVID at that point, 
And um, my boss said to me, look, James, said, I don't think I can keep you much longer. He said, because I've lost some work. I'm going to have to reduce your days down to a day a week. I think what you could do if you're, if you're happy to is, had you thought about freelancing? And I said, well, yes, I have thought about it. And so basically this was the kind of spur to me setting up my business. So I had my boss actually gave me my first contract and I got a second contract and straight away with a tech startup. So I had two contracts to start me off and then the rest, the rest went from there. So yes, it was, it was certainly a godsend actually, because before COVID, I was going up to London and I was working even for this consultancy. And of course, when I was still working at Bechtel before I left there and I'd had my baby, we were getting up at 5.30 in the morning. I was going to drop her off at nursery, which was half an hour away. So we drive half an hour. Leave the house about half six. I get her out of bed at quarter past six, which was, was far too early for her. We'd leave at half past six. We would drive half an hour up the train line from where I am, my nearest train station, and we would drop her off at a nursery there, and literally have to <laughs> scramble and get in the car to get another ten minutes away to the train station, Eridge. And then if we got the seven twenty train, we'd then be in London at our respective workplaces, as my husband and I, for nine o'clock, and then. It, the reverse happened in the evening and it was so tiring. It, it just wasn't sustainable, apart from the fact that my daughter wasn't getting the sleep that she needed. And so, yes, yeah, so when COVID happened and when my boss said, look, Jane, why don't, have you thought about freelancing? And I set up my own business. It was just honestly the best thing ever because actually by this stage, my daughter was a bit older as well. There's a preschool in our village, about five, 10 minutes walk away. So she could attend that. And now there's a primary school that she can go to right next to it. So I have landed on my feet, even though when we bought our house, we never even actually thought about children at the time. And yes, it all seems to fall into place, fortunately. So it's worked out really well. And I think working for yourself, you obviously can design your time when, you know, you need to do things, but outside of your office work but also yes, you can work around those and sometimes I might work a bit late some nights but if I've got a project I desperately need to get finished and and I haven't found enough time that day for some particular reason but I generally work around drop-offs between drop-offs and and um, it also goes after school club so you know I've got between 8 30 and 5 25 each day it's worked out really well I, I have to say and I just think it gives me that freedom not being accountable to anyone but yourself it can be a big responsibility but I think it's one that I, I wanted for some time. And I, in some ways, I felt certainly in the corporate life to the end of the corporate life and my work life. And I was thinking, actually, I'm not sure I really fit here anymore. I was beginning to think that I could use my talents in a better way. And I think actually the way things have worked out have helped me achieve that. Sometimes I think you get nudged before you're actually ready to make that decision. And I felt I was actually nudged in a way to to do what I've done now. And I think it was definitely the best thing for me. I think it's interesting because going back to the fashion thing we were talking about at the beginning, one of my favorite stories in fashion was, I think it was Anne Klein who had her own very successful line for a long time. I think it was Anne Klein. Was it the other way around? Doesn't matter. I'm going to give my, I'm not going to give facts about it. I'm just going to say what happened, which was her boss said, you, you should have your own line. You need to do this. And basically fired her. Mm. Something that actually helped spur her own line. And now I'm thinking it was Donna Karen and it was the other way around. It doesn't matter. <laughs> People are, if anybody it's knows this story, they're going to be like, wrong. <laughs> but the point being, it's really interesting when, you know, maybe a manager or a boss sees something that it sounds like this was a necessity thing, but also a, 
we think you could do this in a different way yeah. that might work better for all of us. Yes, it was. And I and it was the fact that my my boss at the time had that faith in me and said, Jane, you can do this. Yeah. And, and I think having someone else tell me that was like, yeah, okay, I can. Yeah. Yes. And so it, it's worked out. I also think it's interesting because somebody else that I was recently interviewing, we were talking about this concept of having it all and that there's something very anti-feminist about that because it makes you think you have to be that woman that's on the train at some ungodly hour, dropping your child off, running to this, doing that, instead of saying, actually, it works better for me to be my own boss, to be able to know that I can walk five or 10 minutes with my daughter to school and feel like you have something that's so much better than it all. Yeah, totally. Totally. There's something that's really empowering about having the choice. Yes, I agree. I think if you if you don't have that choice, I think you can feel a bit hemmed in. And it's just really important that you, I think, develop your skills and talents as well in, in the way that you might not necessarily have done otherwise. That's how I feel a bit really about the work that I do now and being able to help other people. I didn't feel that I was probably helping other people when I was working in corporate life, maybe. I think it's slightly different. So what you are doing now is positive story. You're getting the positive stories about companies out there. Your website says committed to promoting sustainable and ethical business practices. And you work with clients who share your values, but you also yeah. like the challenge of working with companies that maybe are a little bit more challenging. So I'm curious about how you combine all that together. Yeah, I think really I'm I summed this up for myself the other day, but the companies I work with are those that are making a positive contribution to our environment. And so I work primarily with tech startups, industrial engineering companies and infrastructure companies. So, for example, some of my, some couple of the clients I've got at the moment, one is a water treatment technology startup. And they have developed this technology, which uses reverse osmosis, which is when water is pushed through a membrane, but it treats water and it's a special type of reverse osmosis, which has been said to be the biggest development for 50 years in the sector. And it's fascinating. And I get to work with these guys who are passionate about what they do. Their technology is going to really make a difference. They've just signed a manufacturing agreement. And it means now that their technology can be used all over the world in about 20 different sectors. I just find this hugely exciting and it's something that's going to make a difference. It will help with municipal wastewater, industrial companies and industrial processes. It will help in like healthcare sectors for things like kidney dialysis. So purified water, obviously they need ultra pure water for that. And this technology can do that. And it could even be used to improve rural drinking water because the equipment's quite small, it's portable, it can be moved anywhere. Love working with companies like this and they are making such a difference. Another company I'm working with is a solar energy developer. So they build solar farms. And around the world, they've got projects in the UK, US, Chile, and Australia. And what they're doing is really making energy cleaner. They're trying to make it affordable so everybody can access cheaper, greener electricity. And so that's something I really support as well. And I feel that's making a positive difference to the world. So the stories that you're getting out there or the stories that, where are people seeing these stories, I guess, is the question. <laughs> 
Yeah, so it depends. Largely, it will depend on the on the company that I'm working with, the client. It depends what they want to achieve. Some of the companies I'm working for, they are pivoting their business. So they may be adding a new kind of dimension to the company. So for example, the solar company that I'm working with, they are currently a developer, but they are pivoting now to becoming an owner operator. So there are different different media. The target media has changed because of that. So we need to get their messages out, not just to um, the energy media, but in a wider area. So we will some of their stories will be out in kind of investor type media as well, and of course geographically as well in other countries. So it depends. It depends on the client. With the tech startup I mentioned earlier, the water treatment tech startup. Our focus at the moment is the water trade media because they want to try and sell some of these units of their bespoke bespoke units of their technology. So we yeah targeting water media primarily, but also some of the investor media for them as well because they need to raise funding probably be starting Series A funding later this year. So it all really depends. Some of it's not mainstream. Doesn't mean it couldn't be mainstream, but at the moment we are targeting their key audience, which is really going to be people who will be interested in buying their product. So it's not going to be Joe Bloggs who the man yeah. on the street. So but it probably won't be in the sun. But it's going to this is why yeah, this will be in actual target media. It's interesting to me though, because I feel like one of the things, obviously, I talked to a lot of people in a lot of different type of careers, a lot of different roles. And one of the things that fascinates me is how niche things are or how, you know, you really don't know what it, mm. everything that exists out there in the world. And then you hear something like the water trade media. And of course, there's a water trade yeah. media. It makes perfect sense. And who knows, somebody listening might be like, oh, I've always wanted to write about clean water or something. Where does yeah. that go? And I love finding out. Oh, of course, there's a water trade media. It's not something I've thought about. And these new products sound exactly, you know, what I was hoping you would say when you tell me you have a PR company called <laughs> Positive Story, that there really is something that people are developing that should add to the world as opposed to some of the news you're reading that is really not a positive story. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, what I like about working with companies like these are companies that are making a difference to the environment is that it's making our world a better place. And another company I worked with last year to throw this one in was a, a tech startup which had developed a technology so that you could literally book a journey from your house, so from your door to your mom and dad's house, however far that was, you could book a door-to-door -door journey. So it would involve, say, a taxi or an electric taxi, maybe, or a scooter, your train journey, and maybe an electric taxi or something at the other end. And it would incorporate all those elements of the journey, all the different modes, and on one website with one payment. And it was a way of, it's a way of trying to make people more sustainable and you know, better for the environment, but also easier. Technology makes our lives easier in so many different ways. And this tech startup, the idea for this really does make a difference because otherwise you would have had to probably use three different websites to book the three different modes of, of, of transport. I think technology is there to make our, in, in not all the time, but most of the time can make our lives much easier and can be better for the environment. Especially, I feel like in these smaller startups, people that have really good ideas about how we can make our lives easier and make the world a better place. And obviously, getting the word out there and getting people to invest in those type of things must be really fulfilling. 
Yeah, and I think the thing that I enjoy as well is working with people who are really passionate about, about what they're doing. So Tim, who is the co-founder of Salinity Solutions, which is the water tech startup, he's completely passionate about this. He started studying, researching this technology when he was at university studying for his mechanical engineering degree. It's 10 years of research this has taken and, and now he's commercialised it. It's something he's been passionate about. It's a life work, really. And it's a joy working with people like that who are really passionate about what they do. So I often ask people, if you were to give some advice to somebody else who's thinking about a change, what would you offer her advice? However, I'm going to turn this one on its head a little bit. (laughs) Because you have a fairly new business, it sounds like you did get a great nudge to get started. But So far, what have you found to be the positive stories? What's the positive and maybe what's some of the unexpected not so positive about running your own business? So for me, the positives are working with people who are passionate about what they do and with companies that are making a positive difference to our environment. Obviously, another positive be working from home and and being able to attend school meetings and finding out about what my, how my daughter's doing at school, being able to do those things, take her on a school trip, all those sorts of things. So the convenience of that and also being able to participate in my child's development. And from the negative side... Although I, I said, said not so positive because... Okay, the not so positive. <laughs> the not so positive side, yes. The not so positive side. Although I think working from home is a positive in many ways. Sometimes I think it can be less positive because I feel that I don't probably see as many people as I would have done, obviously, in a corporate environment. So it's up to me really to make that effort to speak to people, so to come on your podcast. And But actually, you know, seeing people, I think it is something you do need to be conscious of and try and make and make little changes to make sure that you're seeing people to get out and networking and conferences and things like that. And I'm trying to do more of that this year as well. So I did say, again, relatively new as far as your company goes, but do you have plans? You know, you're saying one of the not so positives is not seeing as many people and things. What about plans for expansion? You're going to have a big team. What's your goal? Or is it that you're perfectly happy being a solopreneur, as they say? Yeah. And really taking it on yourself. I recently got my chartership. I'm now a chartered PR practitioner, which was an amazing experience. I was part of a a group of 10 PR professionals and we had quite a rigorous all-day assessment with the CIPR, which is the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. So that was something aiming for from a professional viewpoint, obviously. And that's a very small percentage of people that have that, that PR people. That's that right. That, right. That's right. I think it's between, I think, four to five percent of all PR professionals who are registered with the CIPR. Yes, it's only four to five percent who are chartered. So I feel it's quite an achievement and it gives me that validation as well. And I've obviously been in the PR sector for about 20 years now. And I thought I was doing things the right way. So I obviously am. It's just, it's just getting that little bit of validation really helps me. But I think also for my clients to be aware that I have that and that I'm reputable, that I'm honest, transparent, ethical. Yeah, that was something I wanted to do for my business. And also at the moment, I'm working on developing a passive income stream or maybe semi-passive income stream, but basically so I can share. Some of my PR work help people with PR strategy, key messaging, their target audiences, and help them to build their own PR strategies to promote their businesses and their tech startups. So that's something I'm actually currently working on. So watch this space. No pressure now. (laughs) Everyone hear that? Watch this space. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Jane, one of my favorite parts of the podcast is my question, did you bring a quote for me? Now I did. Now I don't know if you can see this and it'll probably read backwards, but this is something I picked up in France. I can't see uh, the text on it, but I can no, see that there's a beautiful um, picture. Yeah, there's a little hot air balloon up here and the sun, sunset down here and some trees and some mountains in the background. And it's a postcard that I picked up. I think I was 21 and it was in France when I was on my year abroad in France. And it's something I've had for such a long time. It's actually got stains on it. And at one point I was going to throw it out and I never did because it's something that I just believe in. I'll say it in French first and then I will, I'll tell you what it means in English. But ce ne sont pas nos épreuves qui déterminent notre destin, mais la façon dont nous les traversons. So it means basically it's not our trials or our tests that determine our destiny, but it's the way in which we get over them. And I, it's something I, I truly believe in. That, of course, means that I have to ask. Something, I guess, a trial or a test that you feel really proud the way you've gotten over it. Oh, um, way to put you on the spot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think in a way it was navigating the, obviously, when I had my baby and leaving corporate life and setting up my own business. I think there are things like that that happen to you in life, the ways you deal with things and move on. I've been made, made redundant before in the past and moving on from that in a positive way and actually seeing it as an opportunity. I think we get these things all the time. I don't think they had necessarily have to be big tests or trials. They can be small ones. But I do think it's the way that we deal with them and with courage and, and commitment and honesty and deal with them and the way we come out of them in a positive way. Yeah, I like that you said seeing things as opportunities because I feel like we, we talk a lot now about it's not a failure, it's an opportunity. But it is really hard, I think, at times when when things, like you said, it's enough to be a huge thing. Sometimes it is it's something that it's really easy to look at and think, oh, this is a bad thing in my life. This is a negative. <laughs> this is a, this is a failure. And yeah. to be able to sort of make it into an opportunity, find it as a new fork in the road that might take you somewhere much more interesting. Yeah, exactly. You'll have to send me a picture of the postcard so that I everyone will. can see on social media what it actually I looks will. like. I will. I'll send it to you. Those are the kind of things, I don't know, I have a few things, in, I have way too many things in my life, actual things. The thing that you pull out and you can't throw away and you think, oh, that's really important to me, I'll save it. I don't know, yeah. I was just cleaning through some files and found some letters, handwritten letters that my sister sent to me when, actually a couple of my sisters used to write me letters when I'd go on internships because I went to a school that I'd have to be away a few months at a time interning and then I'd come back and just I don't, the silly things that we talked about. My sister wrote one letter and said, I'm getting a job at Subway. I'm going to be a sandwich artist. <laughs> and then the next letter. So I'm going to work at La Rosa's, which is another restaurant where I'm from. And she was like, I really didn't want to work at Subway. <laughs> and it's just such a silly thing, but it yeah. takes me back. It's stained and it takes me back to a time in my life that I wouldn't have remembered if I wouldn't have That's right. stuck it in a file cabinet. That's so. right. And I'm sure it will end up in my memory box somewhere. Uh, someday. Exactly. My sister's now a nurse working in surgery and it's, it's very interesting to look back and think for a time she was almost a sandwich artist. <laughs> <laughs> Never know where life's going to lead. Yeah. <laughs> Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you've had a nice time and I've loved hearing your story and we'll make sure that we have all of your links in the show notes. So if anybody does need some PR, needs to tell a positive story or would like to share their positive story, they can get in touch. 
Oh, thank you. That would be lovely. Thank you. And I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Jane. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.